This morning we have a guest speaker, a man who has been on staff here at Cole for almost 10 years, yet uh, probably a lot of you have never seen him in person before. Dan and Monica Brown are two of our, our field staff in the Middle East. Before they were assigned to the field, they, Dan was on staff here for several years, ministering here in Boise. And then uh, about, uh, what, about 82, 83, we just realized that it was God's plan for him to continue on staff, but to be uh, located somewhere else. And they have been ministering, they have been our missionaries in the Middle East. Well, Dan and Monica and their three children, uh, uh, Krista, Laura, and Stephen, are back with us for a couple months on furlough. They'll be here through about the 15th of December. So while they're here, we wanted to grab them and get a chance for Dan to, to minister to us. So we took that opportunity. We are delighted to have Dan this morning. So Dan, would you come up and, and teach us? You ever see those TV shows where they get wired up for a drug bust? There's another announcement that didn't get mentioned earlier. And that is there's going to be a special bonfire today at 4 o'clock. And all former San Francisco Giant fans are invited. <laughs> Bring your old pennants, t-shirts, whatever. We're just going to burn them. That's it. It's really a delight to be back here with you. And as much as we look forward to getting back to our field... It's just uh, exciting to be reconnecting again with those old relationships. October 19th, 1987, 4 o'clock Eastern Time, Wall Street closed more than 500 points down. A couple days later, 200 points more down. We now refer to it as Black Monday. Lots of people lost fortunes. Many here in the church lost a great deal of money in that. Uh, out in the Middle East, we heard about it a couple weeks later, too late, of course, to do anything about it, and found out that our retirement funds were now worth 75 cents on the dollar. And lots of businesses and individuals went bankrupt, and lives were shattered. And it just shows us that in the whole arena of investment, there can be a world of difference between the right choice and the wrong choice. Turn with me, if you will, to... Luke 19, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. As you may be aware, Jesus was very knowledgeable of his world and the business world in particular. And in many of his teachings, illustrations and principles come up from the realm of business. And Jesus also taught us quite a bit about investments. But not just the investment of money, but he's speaking to how we use our time, how we use our opportunities, how we use our abilities. And, in fact, he wanted to drill home the issue, how are you and I investing our lives? As the great philosopher Yogi Berra once said, if you don't know where you're going, chances are you'll end up somewhere else. And so it's really important for us as believers, not simply to muddle through life, but to really take a look at what Jesus says and make some concrete decisions and plans for our direction. Now let's read the passage beginning in verse 11. It'll take us a couple of minutes, kind of a long passage, but pay attention to what our Lord is saying. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem 
And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mine has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second one came. Sir, your mine has earned ten, or five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina, or your mina. I have kept it, laid it away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you, because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in, and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words. You wicked servant, you knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in, and reaping what I did not sow. Why, then, didn't you put the money on deposit, so that when I come back, I could have collected it with interest? Take, or then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Now, what we want to do this morning is go again briefly over the passage itself and see what is, what is Jesus saying? What is he meaning to apply to our lives in this? And then we'll see if there's some principles that we can apply directly to us in our day and age. Luke tells us in verse 11 that there's a particular reason why Jesus gave this parable at this time. He says, because he was near Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus was at the end of his life. He was at the end of his earthly ministry. He was traveling down from Galilee in the north, went out east into what is now Jordan, then back across the Jordan River, and was saying this from the city of Jericho. And in fact, in a few days from then, Jesus would be hanging on the cross. And so Jesus is saying during this time, I'm about to leave. I'm about to receive, in effect, the kingdom of God from my Father. I'm about to return to my Father, but I'm going to return. But after I leave, there's going to be a period of history that is very important how you live. He's saying, I don't want you simply to live any old way, but in fact, I want you here and doing something for a purpose. And I have plans for you. I have a purpose for you. I have a task for you during this particular period of history that you and I are still in. That's what this parable is all about for us this morning. Now, it concerns entrusting some money to his servants. And then Jesus has entrusted our lives to us. And that's, he, he's telling us what he wants to do with our lives. Now, in verse 13, he said, So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Now, a mina, uh, or a pound, depending on your translation, 
was kind of a medium amount of money. It's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of five to fifteen thousand dollars relative to our own economy. So it's not a huge fortune, but it's not a trivial amount of money either. And he says, do something with this. And the New American Standard says, do business with that, with that money. In other words, the clear expectation is that the master wanted them, expected them to work with it, to labor with it, to make something out of it, you know, with all their energies, with all their focus. Now, and also verse 14, he tells us that there's also a problem. His subjects hated him. Now, by that, he's not talking about his servants, his, his trusted officials, his managers that he had just uh, entrusted the funds with. He's talking about the people outside his household, the citizenry uh, there of that city. His subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be king. And Jesus is telling us something here, something of reality. And that is that most people don't want him to be Lord. Let's not fool ourselves. Most people don't like Jesus. I know we're about to enter the Christmas season and everybody's going to be singing Hark the Herald, Angels Sing, and the beautiful Christ Child. And, but when it gets right down to the issue of lordship in their lives, most people don't want Jesus to be Lord of their lives. And you can see the, the vehemence of that oftentimes in, in people's attitudes toward Christians or on a particular moral issue. Most people don't like Jesus. And you and I were the same way. You know, rebellious hearts, stubborn, until the Lord changed uh, our hearts. And let's look then at what happened when he returned. Verse 15. He was made king, however, <clears throat> and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to, find, uh, to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. We observe a couple things from this. First of all, Jesus is coming back. The return of Christ is not just a nice, tidy Christian concept that we teach in Sunday school. But really, really, Jesus is coming back. There's going to be a place, a time, a date. Jesus is really going to come back and re-enter human history. Another thing we see from this is that you and I are going to meet the Lord someday. And we're going to give account for what we did with our lives. And that may be kind of a scary thing or it may be an exciting thing, but someday you're going to sit across a table or whatever from the Lord and meet with the Lord. And I am too. We're going to give account for what we did with our lives. Now that can be a very exciting time, as I just said. It may be, you know, the Lord saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And it's just what the delight we look forward to in meeting the Lord. And hopefully in most cases that will be, that will be the case. But evidently, from what he goes on to teach in the passage, for some, it will be a time of loss, a time of regret, uh, a difficult time, a sorrowful time. But we are going to meet the Lord. Verse 16, the first one came and said, Sir, your mina has gained ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Here's this, uh, this manager, and he gained ten more, a thousand percent profit. That's great. And his master said, he, he praised him, he says, that's tremendous, you've been faithful. In fact, in the original, the author uses the adjective form of the word for faith. He says, you have been a man of faith. You have been a person who has been faithful, who has acted out of faith. And he praised him for that. And then the second one comes up and says, here's five more. He says, great, take charge of five cities. The third one comes up 
and, uh, of course, there's a big problem. But clearly in this, Jesus is teaching differing rewards. Not differing salvation. Salvation in Christ for all who have received him and follow him is the same. But there will be some sort of differing rewards in the kingdom of God. We don't know what they are. It's a very inviting subject. I wish we could have more time with it uh, this morning. Uh, but there's somehow going to be some sort of differing rewards. Maybe dealing with responsibilities or status or role or some kind of wealth. That seems to be the implication in 1 Corinthians 3. But it very much is a New Testament concept. Jesus taught it. Paul taught it. The other apostles taught it. So that's what we see there firstly. Now let's look then at what happened with the unfaithful servant. Beginning in verse 20, Jesus teaches now about this man for, for seven verses, almost half of the parable. And so I think he intends to, to convey a, a serious warning. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. And we observe here he had a sort of limited view of his master. He was correct in that his master was a man who produced results. Uh, he was also correct that his master expected results from him. But his, his understanding of the master was limited because he, he couldn't see that his master was fair and that his master was just as is evidenced in his dealings with the other servants. And this applies to Jesus. This is what he's saying about himself. He expects fruit of our lives. He expects obedience. He expects following us following him in the fullest extent possible. And it's true that Jesus' yoke is easy. His burden is light. But the Lord has commanded us to be involved in his purposes. Many, many teachings. He's made that clear. So in verse 22, the master says, I will judge you by your own words. You knew then that I was hard, that I take in what I put, didn't put out, and so forth. You knew these things. He's saying, you're, you're right. You were afraid. You were caught up in fear. But a lot of these excuses are just excuses. He calls him lazy in the parallel passage in Matthew. Uh, he calls him wicked here. He's saying, you know, if you cared at all, you would have at least put it in the bank with interest. He said, you were just, you were just pursuing your own interests instead of being caught up with my interests. The servant considered himself to be honest because he returned the miner with no loss. The master called him wicked because he returned it with no gain. And we may not like to think of our Lord like that, but these are, in fact, his own words about himself. Now, what can we see from this uh, parable for our own lives? Obviously, this is a hard teaching. But like many of the hard teachings of Jesus, there's real potential for something good for bringing life and joy to others and to our own lives. It seems to me there's two things that the Lord is trying to drive home to us this morning. First of all, there's a job to be done. Jesus says, I'm going, I'm returning to my Father, and you are going to enter into a period of history. And I don't want you to live just any way, I want you to live for my purposes. There's a job to be done until I return. Now, by my calendar, the Lord's been gone 1,956 years, give or take. And he may be gone another thousand, he may be gone another hundred, he may be gone five. Uh, he's already five years late, according to some of the books you've read. Uh, but we, we don't know. But it, he was describing in this passage exactly this period of time that you and I are in. 
And we have a need. I have a need. You have a need. And that is, we must be about the Master's work. You and I, somewhere, somehow, must meaningfully be involved in accomplishing Jesus' purposes here on earth. Absolutely, that's our need. We need that. If we're going to be faithful to what the Lord is saying. And, of course, all of us want to be faithful. Now, think for a minute of some of Jesus' commands. If we're talking in terms of obeying Christ's commands, fulfilling his, his commands, we should know what they are. Here's a few. It's not an exhaustive list. He says, be my witnesses. He said, preach the gospel to every creature. In other words, every man, woman, and child, that everybody have an opportunity to know. He said in another place, love one another even as I have loved you. Serve one another. Be servants. He said, build one another up in your lives and in their faith. Another place, he said, pray for the sick and those oppressed by demonic powers. Uh, He said, pray for people that they might be saved. He says, as you look at the world as a harvest field, he says, the harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. Therefore, command, he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send forth more laborers into the harvest field. That's a command. Depending on what you do with the parable of the sheep and the goats, he said, feed the poor or the hungry. Be kind to strangers. Clothe the poor. Visit the sick or those in prison. And those are commands. Jesus says, if you love me, John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. They're not somehow optional for us. This is Jesus' will for my life and for your life because there is commands. They're not optional. We can't somehow exempt ourselves from the commands of Christ or say, uh, I like that one, and uh, no, I'll take that one over there. But Jesus intended us to be fulfilling his commands in this life. Now, there's another command that oftentimes has been called the Great Commission. I'm sure it's not new to anyone here. He said in Matthew, Go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of every nation, every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This has been called the Great Commission because it was obviously something very important to our Lord. It's in every gospel, all four. It's in the book of Acts. It was Jesus' last words, and last words are intended to be lasting words. As Jesus ascended into heaven, he wanted this ringing in our ears, go and make disciples of all nations. And obviously, obviously, in terms of fulfilling the Master's purposes in our generation, this has to be very central to what he had in mind. So when we look at the issue or the area of world evangelization, or fulfilling the Master's Great Commission, uh, how are we doing? Let's uh, maybe, a little status report here, quick quick one. There's some good things. Uh, Did you know that there are more Christians in the world today than any other religion? That over a billion Christians, now not necessarily born-again types, uh, but at least nominally, people saying, "I'm, I'm a Christian. Over a billion. Also, the percentage of the world's population that's Christian today is higher now than at any other time in history. Praise the Lord. I mean, that's a, that's a, an, a certain measure, then, of, of fulfilling the Great Commission. Also, however, even as we are on the verge of the 1990s, there's some startling realities. 47% of the people alive today are completely beyond the reach of the gospel. There's no witnessing church among them, no mission work. They go to bed every night and wake up every morning without a clue that there's a Savior. They're completely beyond the reach of the gospel. 
20% of the, of the world's population, uh, one out of five people are Muslims. That means a billion people hostage to a religion that says Jesus didn't die on the cross. It's tragic. How can that be? In the 1990s, we've had so much time. And those are realities. Those are statistics. It's hard to visualize statistics. I know that. Uh, often us in missions do a poor job of communicating the, the dimensions of the task because we just, we're just dealing with concepts when the, when the real people are out there. I remember my first trip uh, overseas. I was an adult, September 1983. Uh, I had never really been out of my own home and culture before. And I got off the plane after about a 25-hour flight, Cairo, Egypt. And I'd read lots of statistics about Cairo. You know, there's just the city of Cairo, one city, there is uh, 15 million people. 15 million. That is, we still haven't figured this out. I think the population of Boise, 1,500 times. No, or 1,000 times. Somebody help us out there. Uh, at least 100 times. A whole bunch of people. Uh, and I'd read the statistics. I got off the plane and I went out there. And you know what? I was surprised I didn't see any statistics. I mean, I think I sort of expected to see mommy statistics and daddy statistics and baby statistics. and There were no statistics. Just real people. Real people. Little, sweet little girls and boys and, and kids in, dealing with adolescence and getting in the whole dating thing and uh, dealing with puberty and, and struggling with much of the things that Wayne talked about a minute ago. Couples trying to raise children and work at a job and, and keep food on the table and people facing your time. Just normal people, people with the same concerns that you and I deal with every day. Just normal people. The difference is the vast majority of them had never once heard and still haven't that God has a way to forgive their sins. Those are some statistics. What about Boise? Let's bring it a little closer to home. <clears throat> uh, the church is well planted in Boise, but... The reality of it is, most of the people in Boise don't know the Lord. Do you know that? Most of the people in Boise don't know the Lord, for whatever reason. Obviously represents a mission field there. And yet, there's a difference, just so we understand the difference between unreached peoples out there, in many places, and Boise. I know Monica and I, we're, we're kind of taken back uh, in coming back. We come from a place that, you know, there's, there's no gospel witness almost at all. And in fact, it's really suppressed. And instead of seeing, you know, billboards or whatever, you know, there's nothing at all. Or instead of seeing Billy Graham on the tube, you see some sheikh uh, giving the Friday message from the Quran. And uh, and then we come back here. There's a road I drive on every day. It says, "Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved." And you know, things are on the radio and on the TV. And and a couple weeks ago on a Saturday, Monica was just sort of flipping through the paper and found seven times in which the gospel was explained, either in columns or letters to the editor or whatever. Now, that is not in any way something negative. That's, a, that's an evidence of a great victory. I mean, praise the Lord. God has, God has been blessing here. And God has used you and your faithfulness and many others over the last couple decades. Positive, Christ-like living, good Bible teaching in the churches, uh, good faithful evangelism in many cases. God has been at work. And yet, as we said, there's a great deal to be done. Now, also in this passage, we notice that risk must have been involved. You don't make a 1,000% profit on anything without taking any risks. If somebody tells you that, uh, you may want to call the SEC or something. Obviously, these others were taking real risks. 
And if we start to get serious about the kingdom of God and, and God's work, we're going to be risking our time, our money, our leisure, what people think about us. I mean, if they think we're weird now, just think, you know, if we really get, uh, you know, we're risking all those things, and yet risk was unavoidable. But there's a job to do locally and worldwide. And when I meet the Lord, I don't want him to say, Dan, where were you? And I know you don't either. Well, let's step back from this just for a moment. You may be thinking, uh, all this stuff about our striving or our efforts or our involvement or whatever, isn't that kind of works-ish? You know, we're not into that. Uh, I mean, that's not... What about faith? Faith alone. And obviously, we affirm the doctrine of, of salvation by faith alone. Everything that was needed for you to be saved was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. Everything that was needed for God to say, I accept you fully. I cleanse you of your sins. It wasn't done by you, it was done by Jesus on the cross. We are saved by grace through faith plus nothing. But all of that is in the context of obedience, of obeying the Lord you may also say, well, what about abiding? Doesn't John 15 say, abide in me and, and, and my, my word in you? And I'm just trying to concentrate on abiding. And, uh, and that's great because we are just to abide. We can't produce anything of value just out of our own human strength. The Lord has to work it out of us as we abide in him by his spirit. And yet again, John 15, what's the context of that? That whole section 13 through 17. A lot of commands. It's in the context of obedience. It's in the context of taking up his call. And so, we had that before us. See, there's a particular view of the Christian life that's sort of making the rounds in evangelicalism today that uh, I think is, is borderline heresy. Uh, and I think you'll agree. And some people have got the idea that to be a Christian means just simply having some sort of faith, which means somebody says, well, Christianity is this, and they kind of say, okay, you know, pray the prayer in the booklet, stuff it away as sort of an insurance policy, you know, fire insurance or something, I guess, against hell. And then go on and live as if nothing had ever changed. As if nothing had happened. What's faith? Is it simply mere mental assent to some religious propositions? Obviously it's more than that. Is it just getting into some religious routine? Obviously it's more than that. In the New Testament, faith implies action. It implies follow-through. Let me give an illustration of, of different kinds of faith. Let's say that I were to stand up here this morning and say... Hewlett-Packard, this next week, is going to be the object of a buyout. And the price of it is just going to go through the roof. By Thursday, it's going to double or triple. By the, This is just an illustration. Nobody, uh, <laughs> no lawsuits, please. Um, and there's two different ways you could believe me. You know that? Some could say, well, I believe Dan. He's a nice guy. Uh, I'm sure he means well. But let's face it, you know, it's not exactly Donald Trump here. Uh, and do nothing. You could say, well, you believe me. Or, what would it be like if you really believed me? I mean, not just me, but you believe what I said, that it was true and it was really going to happen. What would you do? Man, you'd take everything you could find, every dollar, every cent. You would empty the kids' piggy banks. You would just get every anything you could get your hands on. You would take your Visa cards and get cash advances. I don't recommend that. Uh, and you, you would pour it into Hewlett-Packard stock. And you'd rush home from work every day, turn on the, on the TV and see, boy, what's happening with these local stocks. Because you believe me. See, that's, that's more like biblical faith. It, it means follow-through. It means a change. It means response. The good servants in this passage were commended for their faith, their faithfulness. 
What kind of faith? How is it expressed? By their action. By their obedience to the task that was given him. James 2.17 says, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It's not my words. Those are the Lord's words. So there's a job to be done, first of all. Second thing we see here is that the smart person is not going to live for this life, but for the next life. Jesus has given us a great opportunity. He has told us in advance what is going to we can invest in now or labor in now, use our lives in now, of great significance and value in the future, multiplied many times over. Uh, I'll give you an illustration again. A friend of a friend of mine in 1960 had $25,000 to invest. And a friend of his came up to him and said, you know what you ought to do with that, buddy? IBM. I thought I was going to say plastics, didn't you? IBM. Said, IBM? Typewriter company? Make clocks? You know, real exciting, huh? And he didn't do it. If he had done that, he would be a millionaire today many times over. And see, Jesus has given us insider information, in a sense, for what's going to be multiplied many times over. And we are supposed to invest in it, and it's perfectly legal. There, there's three things that, that, that uh, Jesus says are going to last forever. God, His Word, and people. And we can almost think of that as kind of a mutual fund. Everything we can put into those in this life is going to multiply over and over and it's going to be really worth it in the long run. See, this life isn't it. This life is short, in fact. The Bible says it's like a vapor. That's it. It's gone. Jesus says it's kind of like a a temporary testing period. It's nothing to get all worked up about. It's a testing period to see if we are going to be faithful. And what an error, what a mistake uh, when we just start to live for this life. I mean, how foolish. Uh, when we try to make this life maximally enjoyable or comfortable or maximally safe or healthy or balanced. I mean, that's dumb. Instead of making it maximally obedient and seeking the maximum reward for the next life. And I get fooled too. Uh, just a little honesty here. A few months ago I was reading through Newsweek and there was an article about a, a Greek uh, billionaire. And he just had money everywhere, owned companies and shipping lines and all that stuff. And here was a picture of him on his yacht. Uh, you know, probably a 10,000 footer or something. That has it made. And I thought, no, he doesn't. That guy is poor. He's, he's wretchedly poor. He's like the man that Jesus said who was, who was poor toward God. He said, but he was building barns and he's building this and he was investing that. And, and Jesus says, you fool. You fool. Who has really got it made? Those who are rich in this life or those who are rich in the next life? We want to be like David, King David. It's said of him in Acts 13. You don't have to turn there necessarily. But uh, verse 22 says, After removing Saul, God made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Don't you want the Lord to say that about you? A man or woman after my own heart. Well, how? He will do everything I want him to do. That's how David was a man after God's own heart. God knew he would do everything I want him to do. Later on it says, For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep and was buried. 
But that's all we're talking about here this morning. I'm not up here talking about missions this morning. Scratch that. I'm just here talking about accomplishing God's purpose in our generation. That's all the Lord wants of us. But we get lured in by so many things. It's tragic how so many Christians start thinking, I'm going to make it in this life. This is it. This is where I'm going to put my put the eggs in my basket. It's here. Amy Carmichael said, Be aware of what you set your heart on, for surely it will become yours. Jim Elliott, the uh, missionary from the 50s, used to say that when I appear before the Lord, I only want one thing. And that is to be able to know that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing when I was supposed to be doing it, without any regrets. Can you say that? We all want to be able to say that. There's a way of thinking, though, in our culture that goes against all this. It's it's just, we run into it every day. And it says that you're an American. This is the land of the free, home of the brave, the land of opportunity, and you're smart, and you're, you're talented. And you owe it to yourself, or to society, or you owe, you owe it to God to make the most of it, to be all that you can be, to achieve everything you possibly can in this field or this talent or whatever. And you know when it comes to the, to the Christian, that's, that's malarkey. Jesus says, he who seeks to find his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will find it. What does Jesus want of you? To be all that you can be? No, he wants you to put your life on the cross. And he'll decide whether or not he can use your, your gifts in business or your athletic talents or whatever it may be. Uh, he wants us to give it up completely. Now remember, in the late 30s, early 40s, uh, the Nazi leadership of Germany decided that they needed a little bit more Lebensraum, and they proceeded to invade Austria, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Poland. And eventually the Allies woke up and said, hey, no way. We are not going to stand for this. This is totally unacceptable. We're going to do something about this. And we read that in their first wartime meeting in December 1941, Roosevelt and Churchill had adopted a defeat Germany first strategy. Now, why didn't they just adopt a let's send a few people to war strategy? Because they felt that whatever the price was, it was worth it. It had a job. It had to get done. Think of the invasion of Normandy. Thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of soldiers invading all at once. Thousands of casualties. Many died even before they touched land. I think, what a waste. Why didn't they just send 100 of the best trained soldiers from North America and Europe? I mean, after all, God's not into numbers. They had a job that they knew had to get done. And they thought whatever it took, it was worth it. They planned to win. They planned to finish the job. If Jesus said, let's make disciples of all nations, then let's do it. Let's not just play about it. Let's do it. Where are the people who will say that the cause of Jesus is worth walking away from anything for? That just maybe the honor of Christ is worth it. Well, what's the bottom line? There's a job to be done, uh, and, and we need to live for the next life. And though Nancy Reagan may be saying, just say no, Jesus would say, just say yes in this regard. Just say yes. We've got a tremendous opportunity for laboring for that which will last. Paul, in the book of Thessalonians, we studied a couple weeks ago, he said, 
to the, about the Thessalonians, he said, what is my joy, my hope of expectation? What is that which really turns me on? Is it not you? And the thought of standing with you before Christ, before His throne when He comes? Remember that, that verse? In other words, the thing that really turned Paul on was the thought of being in heaven with Jesus and these hundreds of Thessalonians and, and their generations following them, who, humanly speaking, because of his efforts and his faithfulness, would be in heaven. And they would be there before Christ, members of the kingdom of God. And he says, that's what turned me on. He says, what a, what a tremendous privilege. God has opened my eyes to see that there's more to life than just putting bread on the table or tires on the car. But he's allowed me to be a servant of Christ to take the, the good news to people that they might be rescued from hell. That's, that's what he says is where it's at. Now, where do we start with all this? Many, of course, it's not a matter of starting. You've, started, you've been so faithful for years. Uh, but there's many opportunities within the church, obviously, to serve, to build up the body of Christ, that there be growth quantitatively and qualitatively in, in the maturity of the body. And many opportunities outside the church with our non-Christian neighbors and friends and, and uh, you know, many opportunities, a mission field around us. Let's, let me give one concrete illustration. And uh, I meant it, to be help, meant it to be helpful, not in any way stepping anybody's toes. But there is a virtual mission field on our doorstep. There is a, a huge block of people in southern Idaho that have a form of Christianity and yet... Uh, teach something contrary about who Jesus is. And their, and their view of the gospel itself is, is unbiblical. It, it's wrong. And there's thousands and thousands of people in Idaho trapped in, in these beliefs, trapped so that they don't hear what the Bible really teaches on these things, that they might be saved. And how is it that we can love those from LDS? Do we have an attitude, well, boy, they have strange beliefs, and you know, I just want to stay with my kind of people? Or do we see them as people for whom Christ died, that God wants us to use. Talk in terms of unreached peoples. I mean, here's a virtual unreached people right here in our midst that God would call us to. Just say yes to the Lord. Let's pray, shall we? Let's just take a moment to all reflect on these things. Ask the Lord to give us real clarity in terms of what He's saying to us personally. Jesus called us to nothing less than to follow Him to lay down our lives that others may live. But we have to risk. Are we worth it? Are we uh, willing to do that? It's not a spectator sport. Some may feel, Jesus, I didn't realize that you, you meant it this seriously. And how can I do these things? I don't, I don't know anybody who lives this way. Just ask the Lord that he might show you what this means for you. The Lord wants the spirit of availability from all of us to each day say, Lord, I'm available. Show me where you want me to get involved in what you are doing in others' lives. Jesus, we're very grateful to you this morning that you gave us this teaching. Lord, we don't want to simply spin our wheels during our time on this earth, but use it for something that's going to count. Thank you, Lord. What a rich privilege this is. The things we do here, our faithfulness to you here, will be of eternal significance in the coming kingdom. We trust you, Lord, for your continuing leading and your empowering, Lord, that these things might happen effectively. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.